0: you're listening to the molehill podcast an audio anthology of treasured writings read aloud by the writers themselves
1: i'm your host drew miller this haunting driven by a restlessness driven on and on through the cities of men with their glass metal mountains through the bright blazing streets and their mazes of delight. Still a voice echoes out around every corner. We will never be home until the city descends. Driven on by a longing, driven on and on through cathedral columned forests to the heights of cloud tossed mountains and the valleys swept with shadow where the water falls to streams. In the flow, I hear the echo. We will not sing the song until the rocks and trees break forth in praise. Driven on by an emptiness, driven on and on underneath the wheeling stars and the vast dark dome of night, silently alive in the dance of planets, in the black between the stars I hear, we will never dance as we ought until the loving mover moves us. Driven on by a turbulence, driven on and on to the storm-tossed oceans foaming and frothing, moving to moon dance and the rising and falling, in the silence between the waves it says, we will not rest until the ocean tamer stretches forth his hand. Driven on by this haunting, in every corner of creation, by fragments of a lost song we have never heard, by this understanding when we look at light filling up a sky. Everything is a shadow of its future self, for creation waits to fulfill its purpose, waits to be filled with unshackled glory when the ghost at last takes on flesh eternal.
0: That was Chris Yokel reading his haunting poem, This Haunting. Which was originally published in The Molehill, Volume 3. You'll hear more of his poetry before this episode is over. And now it's time to hear from Jennifer Trafton. But before we do, I've been told a dubious fact about Jennifer Trafton. Once you hear it, you'll be unable to approach her writing the same way ever again. It's quite a defining, yet little known feature of her life. Jennifer Trafton has never been struck by lightning. But she knows her time is coming and has spent the past 20 years in a desperate attempt to avoid her destiny. Don't we all, Jennifer? Don't we all? Now, a word about Jennifer's piece, This is for All the Lonely Writers. The typical lifespan of a Rabbit Room blog post is somewhere around one or two weeks, If the writer is lucky, she may receive a dozen or so comments over the course of that time, and after that, it slowly fades from the foreground, honorably ceding its place to the next week of writings. But there are some blog posts that strike such a chord, that resonate so deeply with so many of our readers, that they live a different sort of life. This is for all the lonely writers by Jennifer Trafton is one of these. In its nearly three years of existence, it has been posted, reposted, loved and loved again. If web pages could be dog eared and scrawled upon, this post would stand out for all its markings. It's somehow both vulnerable and universal. It's about the necessity of loneliness and where the deepest voice of the artist comes from. So whether you're lonely or not, Whether you write or you don't, I have a feeling this one's for you.
2: This is for all the lonely writers. She sat in the second row amidst a noisy gaggle of fourth graders. She was petite and olive-skinned, and her dark eyes measured me as I paced back and forth and pontificated about matters ethereal and authorial. I could tell from her sharp, sensitive answers to my questions that stories were seared into her soul, branding her for a calling that perhaps even she did not yet recognize. After her classmates had exhausted their inquiries about my writing, my age, my dog's name, and the magical source of all ideas, she quietly raised her hand. When you were our age, were you ever lonely? Her eyes were so direct, Her question stated so simply and honestly that it was perfectly clear what she was asking. Were you ever like me? Is it possible to feel so alone, so different from everyone else, and still grow up to be the kind of someone I want to be? I couldn't in that room full of a hundred children run to her and throw my arms around her, and I doubted very much that she was the only one who harbored such a question in her heart. So I answered her as simply and directly as she had asked yes, yes, I was lonely. I was so shy and quiet that boys would tease me in order to see who could get me to talk. And yet in my books, I found friends. As I read and wrote stories, I became other people. I went on adventures, and I found out more about who I was. I wanted to tell her, the loneliness will end. You will find your place. I wanted to tell her the world is full of lonely people, and someone else is looking for the friend that only you can be. But those are only half-truths. It would have broken my heart to speak the whole truth to her, or to the nine-year-old version of myself that I saw in her eyes. You will continue to be lonely for a long time, and your loneliness is the furnace in which fine metal will be forged, and out of that place of inner fire will rise your art. For you will be a writer someday, and words will come from those places in you where speech is muffled and still. I have no idea what it is like to be an outgoing, extroverted writer. I can only speak from the perspective of someone who scores 99% on the introvert scale, who still, after having had so many dear friends in my life, pushes constantly against a wall of shyness, who still feels lonely in the midst of loving community. I'm not sure I'll ever get over the feeling of being the Picasso-esque face in every crowd, slightly disjointed, slightly askew, poised on the edge of normal but too cockeyed to be cool. You would like me, surely, if only my left ear were not hanging crookedly off the end of my tongue. But along this introverted journey, I have learned a thing or two about loneliness and community and art. When I was four years old, my preschool teacher told my parents never to let me close myself up in my room by myself, because she could already see the tendency in me to get lost in my own mind, to bury myself in my imagination. My parents didn't tell me about this conversation until I was an adult. Growing up, I assumed it was a universal rule that children were not allowed to close the doors of their bedrooms. That teacher was prescient. She saw the warning signs of a lifelong struggle. I had no right to be a lonely child. My family was extremely close and unfailingly supportive. I did not look different from my peers or even act much different, except for being quiet. The real problem was that I was too deep for my own skin. I was always standing apart from the world, analyzing it, taking it in, mulling over it. My thoughts, questions, fears, and dreams were buried so far under the surface that I didn't know how to scale that chasm back to the land of other people again. It was like pulling a heavy bucket of words up from the bottom of a well. There was just too much. It was too hard. Sometime around age 13, I discovered the following poem in a literature textbook. A noiseless, patient spider. I marked where on a little promontory it stood isolated. Marked how to explore the vacant, vast surrounding it launched forth filament, 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 out of itself. Ever unreeling them. Ever tirelessly speeding them. And you, O my soul, where you stand, surrounded, detached, in measureless oceans of space, ceaselessly musing, venturing, throwing, seeking the spheres to connect them, till the bridge you will need be formed, till the ductile anchor hold, till the gossamer thread you fling catch somewhere, oh my soul. I didn't know who Walt Whitman was, I had to look up promontory filament ductile and gossamer in the dictionary, but I knew that this poem was about me, surely as if my name had been written at the top, I was that spider. The poem expressed precisely how it felt to grow up as a shy, overly thoughtful girl. I hugged it to my heart all through high school. And then in college, my favorite professor told me something that was the complimentary truth to my preschool teacher's warning. The time you spend alone with your books and your art is not wasted and it is not selfish. That solitary learning and growing will make you a better friend, a better wife, a better mother, a better teacher. This acknowledgement and affirmation of my introversion, like the Whitman poem, made me start thinking about aloneness as the necessary fire that launches us into community. I've heard so many people make fine distinctions between solitude and loneliness, saying that in the solitude of creativity we are alone but not lonely. Because, of course, solitude is the incubator of a writer or any artist. It forces you to develop a rich interior life. The mastering of an art and the nurturing of those disciplines of contemplation from which art grows requires vast amounts of alone time. Stories and poems emerge from silence. Their birthplace is a quiet gasp of wordless wonder." except that so often the solitude of art-making is lonely, deeply, painfully lonely. And I think somehow it must be to a certain extent. If you're an artist by nature, then art comes out of that place in you that cannot be shared with another human being except in this creative form. It gives a voice to inner things that otherwise could not be spoken, inner things that make you who you are in your truest moments, Flannery O'Connor said the quality of the novel I write will derive precisely from the peculiarity, or aloneness, if you will, of the experience I write from. Peculiarity and aloneness. Don't most of us feel that way? And yet this sense of disjointedness and isolation can be the very source of the peculiar word that we alone can speak. If we were perfectly normal, perfectly loved, perfectly understood, perfectly aligned with the contours of the world we find ourselves occupying, would there be anything left to say? There comes a time in our childhood or adolescence when we learn that the world is broken. And not only that, but we are broken, like Humpty Dumpty, and we cannot put ourselves back together again, even when we are surrounded by well-meaning royal helpers. Loneliness is the gaping hunger of the cracks. But the grace of art is that it thrives in broken soil. And that is why when I saw that fourth grade girl full of loneliness and imagination, I saw the seedling of an artist. I saw someone who like me had a secret room inside, who probably like me was longing for someone else to come and fill it. But no, I thought as I looked at her seeing my own nine-year-old self, if another human being could come into that inner room and fill it up, you would stay there forever never emerging from the cocoon of your own dreams. The fact that no one can come into that room, but you still need to share it, forces you to take the precious things in that room with you and leave it. And that is a creative process, a movement outward. It launched forth filament, filament, filament out of itself. Here's the paradox. You cannot make art except by being alone and yet you cannot be an artist in isolation. Along with that wonder born in solitude comes an irrepressible urge to turn to someone else and tell him or her about it. The creative impulse in you speaks two things. First, make this. Then, share this. Do not hold it tightly to your chest. Cast it out of you and let it fall. Then cast it out again and again till the bridge you will need be formed. Till the ductile anchor hold. I have come to believe that in order for art to be art, it must be given. Creativity is at its heart an act of self giving, and it is given in gratitude for having received something. It is an act requiring great courage courage to stand in that lonely place and at the same time to be conscious that one is surrounded by faces and to be constantly reaching out of that loneliness into communion with the world. Art is always reaching. Here is a further paradox. In order to not be alone, you must go by the way of aloneness. In order to find one who can receive your words, you must have the courage to first send those words on the journey out of yourself into a world that may not receive them. You must fling that gossamer thread out across those oceans of space. And flinging is not a safe, calculated movement. It is reckless abandon. It is a motion of both carelessness and joy. And you will be rejected. You will find yourself sometimes in community, because it is still community whether you like it or not, whether you're happy or not, with people who are utterly different from you, who have opposite interests and concerns, who do not understand you and whom you do not understand. And yet they could be the very people from whom you will learn the most, who will hone the edges of your spirit until it grows gentler in the friction, and to whom you must learn to give yourself, because that is when the gift is hardest and riskiest and therefore valuable in its frailty. The loneliness from which your art arises may give you insight into some deep, empty place in the heart of humanity, and your unique expression of that need might be the mirror in which others can finally see themselves and know they are not alone. So by forming the fruits of our solitude into words or pictures or music, we turn loneliness into love. That work of art, that story, that poem— becomes a third place outside of my heart and yours, yet bridging both. My husband Pete says he could not have written his novels about Finn Button today because marriage has taken away so much of the emptiness and sadness that was the fuel for that story. Yet how many thousands of people was he unwittingly loving through that story spun in a bachelor's empty room? I was single until I was 36, and the years leading up to marriage were pockmarked by moments of searing loneliness that will always remain part of my own peculiar experience. The gossamer thread that finally caught and held to another person was art. I offered my story, the story that had pulled me out of myself and into the world, to one particular and equally peculiar man, and he offered his story to me. And those words, wrought in our separate solitudes, became the first bridge between us. But even in marriage, even in the midst of like-minded community, even when we finally find those people who will shelter us from the burning glare of the great alone. We, at least we introverted artists, I can't speak for anyone else, always ebb back into a solitary hidden place inside that is only ours, that we cannot explain to anyone, that no one else seems to see or understand, and yet we are so driven to share it that it must come out in artistic expression. This place is the spring in the mountains from which flows the river that will bless all of those precious people in our lives. It is the place of prayer, and it is the place of art, because in that innermost place we are most aware of the things that transcend us. Is it possible to create from a place of fullness, joy, belovedness, and belonging? I'm sure there must be, but I don't know what the art of perfect wholeness looks like because as far as I'm aware, no broken person on this broken earth has ever made it. I don't know what songs Humpty Dumpty will sing when he is put back together again, yet I wonder if even then, the quality of his art will derive precisely from the peculiarity of the cracks from which he was healed. I have been deeply lonely in my life, and I have been deeply loved, and I would not part with either one of those experiences. For they both have been necessary to set me upon the journey I've taken. And so, this is all I want to say to her in the end, to that beautiful, dark eyed girl who stands on a solitary promontory, spinning her gossamer thread. Fling your silken soul far out into the world, little spider. It will catch.
1: Another World The mountains are always drawing us towards worlds unknown, realms shrouded in mist at the peak of heaven, where God walks the stones in a whirlwind, and we long to behold his face in a cloud break, till our souls are shaken and stripped of all dross, and we descend with both a little less and a little more than who we were.
0: was Another World by Chris Yokel originally found in volume 3 of The Mole Hill and if you're wondering what this is you know the gorgeous acoustic guitar under my voice it's Ron Block it's his instrumental guitar record A Light So Fair it was also the music that you heard under Jennifer's voice so let's just listen to Ron Block for a minute because I think that's a good idea relax Close your eyes if you're not driving. And just like that, we find ourselves at the end of episode two. But don't cry just yet. Unless, of course, Jennifer's already made you cry. Because it's time for your favorite nonsensical game show, Words of Befuddlement. <laughs> It's the moment we've all been waiting for. For those of you who might be tuning in just now and don't yet know the glories of words of befuddlement, allow me to explain briefly. It's basically like Dictionary or Balderdash, if you've ever played one of those games where there's a word, no one knows what it means, all the players come up with their own definitions to that word, and then they go back into the dictionary, find the real definition, and see how close they got. Except what makes this game befuddling is that the word in question does not exist, except for in the mind of Pete Peterson. So we're all just making stuff up. Uh, I shared a word last week and invited listeners to send in their definitions of this word to me, drew at rabbitroom.com, and that invitation extends today as well once we get to today's word. Um, And I'm going to read you a few of their definitions. The word in question last week was pleathe, P-L-E-E-T-H-E, a verb, pleathe. And here are a few definitions that I received. I'm going to save my personal favorite. I'm unashamed to have a personal favorite of these definitions. I'm going to save it for the end and you'll see why. Okay, so here are some definitions that we received in emails. Pleathe, to bury an object of sentimental value in a meaningful location. Pleathe, the practice of removing nose hair during conversations or attending meetings. Pleathe, to trim the dome of a cake so that it is even for layering. Pleathe, the act of combing wool against the grain prior to shearing to check for dandruff. That feels kind of believable. please To chew without teeth. Now this one, funnily enough, is actually quite close to the definition uh, that Pete Peterson had when he first came up with this word. So, very impressive. I'll share that one at the very end. Now, here's my favorite definition that I received in an email, and it comes with its own etymological, historical context. It's it's incredible. So, just immerse yourself in this. Get lost in the world of this definition. This person wrote in to say that they had been studying up on Scottish history and trying to learn Gaelic. So, this word, plead, has cropped up more than once. Really now? They wrote, To pleat is to pleat incorrectly, specifically when it comes to pleating a kilt. It comes from the Gaelic word pleath, P-L-E-I-T-H. While today pleathing can refer to wearing any mismatched outfit, it originated during the Napoleonic Wars when an inept kiltmaker for one of the highland regiments failed to match the vertical lines of the sets in the tartan so that the pleated fabric across the back of the kilt didn't replicate the tartan. It was so badly mismatched that the visual dissonance of these poorly made kilts wreaked havoc on the soldiers marching behind any of these so-kilted men. Finally, General George Gordon, the 5th Duke of Gordon, commander of the 92nd Highlanders, had to sideline these men so they could fix the pleating on their kilts. Today, it is common when a Scottish person sees any awful outfit for him to shake his head and say, Ove, ove, hey, faile a pleath, which literally means, oh dear, the kilt is badly pleated." My, oh my, I think we have a winner. But unfortunately, according to Pete Peterson, the definition of pleath is simply to beg for teeth. And now it's time for this week's Word of Befuddlement. Just like last week, I invite you to send in your very best guess at a definition of this made-up word. And the word this week is tomb. Not T-O-M-B, but rather T-O-O-M. It's a noun. Tomb. That's it for episode two of the Mole Hill Podcast tune in next week for more poetry stories and shenanigans special thanks to Chris Yokel, Jennifer Trafton Zach and Maggie and Ron Block who kindly allowed us to use music from his recent instrumental guitar album A Light So Fair you can find it at store.rabbitroom.com or on Ron Block's own website this podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room where art nourishes community and community nourishes art to learn more Visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. See you next week.